morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Today's episode is a special rebroadcast of my live conversation with Henry Winkler at Bookmarks on November 15th. Henry was in town to share his new best-selling memoir, Being Henry, The Fonz and Beyond. I hope you enjoy. What Hello, Winston Salem. To leave your home. Hey, great. This is we're sitting here with a gentleman who just has experienced Moselle's uh, tomato pie. So uh, he's in a pretty good mood, I think, right? <laughs> Did you ask me a question? Well, I just said it. How was how was the pie? I swear, I was thinking the pie. Yeah. Now I'm going to answer about the pie. Perfection. I mean, uh, that was outrageously good. The entire meal was great. Everything we ate, I love your blue hair. And uh, it was just really good. How do I look? He looks good. He's good. I, and, the, and the sweater is making a debut tonight. Yeah. My birthday, a gift um, from a very good friend of ours. And it has never been out in public. So, so uh, let's change the pace for a minute. Okay. I want to ask you a question because I, I feel like this undergirds so much of your career as an actor, your career as a writer, and your life. What does it feel like to be a child with dyslexia and an adult with dyslexia? When I was younger, uh, no one knew what it was, mm -hmm. which I understand. And uh, I was called stupid, lazy. Uh, I was called uh, dumme Hund, which, uh, if you don't speak German, means dumb dog. Uh, could we turn my mic down just a little bit? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and it, I didn't want to be stupid. But all the adults were saying, you're stupid. So like a duckling, you know, you, you imprint. And I thought, oh, maybe, I, I'm, may I, maybe I've got to be. I've got to be stupid. And then I made a, uh, a deal with Stacy, my wonderful wife. It's her birthday today. I had to acknowledge it, but you, you, you noticed, Stace, I did not ask anybody to sing. I know that would make you crazy, okay? But I made a deal with Stacy that I would be a different parent because, yes, my parents came from another country. They learned another language. He started a business. We lived above our means. I had a good life, but here it is. 
Our children are not extensions of who we are. They are individuals. They are who they are when they come here. It, it, they just have to grow into themselves. And when you see your child have a problem, even if you don't know the name of that problem, if you don't know how to solve the problem, you know how to make the child, or it is our job to make that child a little more comfortable and not call them dumb dog. When I found out that I was dyslexic, I was angry. Because, now, you know, uh, I, when I, I couldn't watch TV um, all through uh, high school because it, you know, if I stayed at my desk long enough, I was going to get geometry. <laughs> so they would go out. I would have a TV dinner. I would roll back the tin foil. I would add butter on the potato. I would let the, the bubbling brown Betty bubble. <laughs> and I had to turn off the television at the right moment because when they came home, they were so short they got phone books out so they could reach the top of the television. And they felt it because we had tubes at that time. There were tubes. And if it was hot or warm, I was grounded for another six weeks. <laughs> I was angry at the beginning. I then said, okay, this is what I've got. I have to learn how to manage it, how to negotiate it. And now I understand maybe if I didn't have that struggle with my learning challenge, I would not be here with you tonight. So you were 34? When you found out you were just... I was uh, 31. But 31, okay. Yeah, give and, it and, but you were a working actor at that point. I was. When, when, you, when you learned about this, did they, did they give you coping mechanisms? Did they say, here's a way you can... Because your just career anybody, words. Did anybody give me? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. But what I, what I learned was how to cope with it. Because until that moment, when I'm sitting around the, uh, the table reading the script Monday morning for Happy Days, let's say, uh, the producers and the director and all of the department heads are all there. The, the cast, everybody is waiting to see what their job is. What do they have to build? What costumes do they need? Who do they have to cast for the show Friday night? And of course, I stumbled over reading it because I can't read really off the page. And it was embarrassing. I was filled with a lot of shame. And I covered it with humor. So I would make jokes every time I made a mistake, but I was really making it more difficult for the other actors because I had a cue, they heard the cue, they were able then to say their line. And sometimes I never gave them the cue. Yeah. So you went. To, you trained as a as a stage actor. I did. You went to Yale Drama. Yes. Well, now, if anybody here wants to be an actor, I wholeheartedly say to you: train in the theater. You learn everything you need to know in the theater, and then you use it in every other discipline. But theater is the beginning. So tell us a little bit about that experience of, of being at Yale, because you, you did not have what we would call a stellar academic high school career. Right. And now suddenly here you are at Yale with you know, some of the most talented actors to be in the country. So um, you know, we talked about geometry before. I took it for four years, same course. 
By the way, just to make Henry feel better, everybody who did get geometry, raise your hand. Okay, so see, it's not just, it's I'm not just us. I'm coming to visit you. <laughs> so I took geometry for four years, same course. And uh, I finally passed it in my senior year summer school, 1963, August, with a D minus. If I didn't get a D minus, I couldn't go to the one college out of the 28 that I applied to. Uh, I couldn't go there to Emerson College in Boston. So I, I finally passed it with a D minus. I took it for four years, as I said, since that day in August of 1963 until tonight. Not one person has ever said hypotenuse to me. <laughs> So I learned that we have to teach our children how they learn, not what we think they should learn. I will then also say, if there are young people who are still in school and they are struggling in this hall tonight, I will tell you, and you can take this to the bank, how you learn has nothing to do with how brilliant you are. That is the truth. So you, you trained for the theater. Yes. You acted in the theater. I did not train in opening this bottle. You did not train in opening the bottle. <laughs> no. but, uh, oh, there it is. So what, what would you say, again, assuming maybe there's some incipient actors in our, yes. in our midst, um, what's a, what are the differences that you experience between acting for the stage and acting for television? Acting for the stage, you have to fill the room with your energy. If there is a clock on the back wall, you have to fill all the distance from where you are into that clock. You have to embrace the, uh, the audience. You have to uh, envelop them in your energy. The movies, television, the camera is right here. You have to be a simmering pot on a stove just before the top flies off because the, it, it bubbles over. You have to keep it contained, but with the same concentration of what it is you're communicating, what you're feeling, what you're talking about. But that is the difference, the energy here or there. And you've done... Neil Simon, you've, I done, did. you've done classical theater. Yes. Um, how, classical how, theater was difficult. Yeah. How do, how do you feel, what, what sort of difference do you have in the satisfaction, the kind of satisfaction you get from acting in front of a live audience versus <gasps> acting in front of a, a camera? A live audience, you feel the energy, the collective energy that is in front of you. And uh, I did a Broadway play for nine months. You could feel if the audience was sitting forward and was happy to be there, couldn't wait to see what the play was. You could feel on a Saturday night if they ate or drank too much and they're sitting back. <laughs> you could feel if they are showing. And now you cannot push, you can't do anything different, you just hope that what you're doing is going to lasso them in and pull them forward. You can feel it, 
and if you are um, president, <laughs> if you are present, that it's palpable and exciting. Yeah. It is. My dream is to get back to Broadway. I did one play, opened and closed in seven days. I did one play, ran for nine months. I did one play, opened and closed the same night. <laughs> and so I am looking forward to, um, to doing that again. Yep, yep. And I better hurry up. So you, uh, <laughs> you, you fly to Los Angeles. Yes. With almost no money in your pocket. $1,000. Now, I went to the Yale Drama School. I don't know, you know I, where I got the nerve to try out, but I did. I did a, a, a classical piece, uh, Launce and the Dog. I don't remember it, and nor did I remember it on that day. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Launce and the Dog, and then I improvised. I made up Shakespeare, and trust me, there was no iambic pentameter involved. <laughs> Truth is true. <laughs> oh, God. So 25 actors started, 11 finished, and three were asked into the company. I was one of those three. And on June 30th, 1970, I was paid $125 a week. And the dream I had on 78th and Broadway uh, in my apartment where I was born and raised was now coming true. I was now on my way. I was a professional actor. Yeah. Oh my. That was an amazement to me. Yeah. I got, I don't, probably knowing my father, it, it must have been like, I, but I got a new car for graduation from college that never worked. <laughs> so like I bumped my way down the road. And I found out there were, um, uh, there were um, uh, metal shavings in the gearbox. <laughs> so he must have gotten a deal. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you started out, yeah. shortly after you get to, to Los Angeles, you are given a, a part in an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which yes. at the time is the, the biggest show on television. Yes. Um, One week. Yeah, tell us about being there. It's, it's great how you took this tiny part and you made it something more than just a background character. That is, so I, I now am in uh, Los Angeles on uh, September 30, 30, uh, 18th, uh, 1973. Uh, I have $1,000 and a month to make that last. And I, my agent is now in LA opening a satellite office from her office in New York. The man who took over her office said, you want to be known to New York, stay here. You want to be known to the world, go to California. Let me just say, big decision for a very short, worried Jew. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought, I can't go to Los Angeles. Everybody is so much taller, and they have <laughs> blonde hair, and they are, they've got jeans, and, there are creases down there. And I don't know how they maintain those creases. They never are wrinkled. And I, I went on my very first audition to the Mary Tyler Moore show. The producer said, I don't have a script yet. We only have 
one line. I only know one line. You're sitting at a table by yourself, and you say, please, to the, the, the big table of all the adults, um, please pass the salt. <laughs> so I took the glass off his desk of pencils. I emptied it. I took a pencil. I clanged the glass. I said, do not, do not worry. Don't disturb yourself. If you get a moment, could you please pass the salt? <laughs> I am now staying, because I am very frugal, on somebody's couch. I just met him, Charlie Hayde. Uh, he was in Hill Street Blues. He, his wife, his baby, and their dog were in this hotel room, and I'm on the couch. Until his wife said, Charlie, he's got to go. <laughs> And now I, so Charlie drove me around LA. We found one of those apartment buildings that was a square um, uh, surrounding the pool. Um, and I lived in this uh, apartment with a, um, with a wet bar. Uh, I rented my Victrola because we had a vinyl at that time. And my television. And I had a bedroom. And I got the Mary Tyler Moore Show. By the time I got back to his couch, to Charlie's couch, they called and said, he's hired. And I had lived four lines into eight. <laughs> and I wore my own clothes, my own suit, my own tie, shirt, saved the money. Very thoughtful. <laughs> and then a week later, I went to Paramount Studios now, I'm still under the guilt of the Yale Drama School. Yeah. I have been in New York and I did commercials, which um, all of the actors that I, I went to Yale with said, I don't know how you can do that. It goes against our aesthetic grain. <laughs> We're trained for the theater. Their next question to me was, how do you get them? <laughs> Because I was making a living. Yeah, yeah. I was working in front of a camera. I was learning that. And I could do plays for free in a church space, the St. Clement's Church in their basement. No one came, you know. <laughs> but we were doing theater. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I, you know what? I do that all the time. I'm so thankful that somebody's alarm just went off. <laughs> and I, that reminds me I have to set mine. So I, I thank you. I thank you. Okay. So now I go to Paramount Studios, and I have said to my agent, you know, I don't know if I want to do a series. I'm still under the gray cloud of being in the theater. <laughs> she said, just go and meet them. I said, okay. I go. There's a room filled with actors. Every one of them I had seen on TV. And me. <laughs> and I walked in, and there were 11 people. Gary Marshall, Tom Miller, Eddie Milkus, the, tri the triumphant who produced Happy Days. Yep. Millie Gussie behind a very severe desk, the head of casting. And this man named Pasquale, who is going to read with me. He's going to read the other part. And I, don't, I was overtaken by a spirit because I looked at Pasquale and I said, 
do not look at me like that. <laughs> I then did the six lines like that, threw the script up in the air, walked out, and at the end of the month, on my birthday, October 30th, 1973, they called and said, would you like to play this role? And I said, let me think of, yes, I would. <laughs> I would, and, okay, can I just, the, yeah. the, so the, the first day on the set, I, I've told the story before, but I, I love this story. First day on the set, it says, the character goes to the mirror, combs his hair. Now, I am thinking, you know, uh, I'm trained. I want to be original. I don't want to comb my hair. Every character who's ever played this part has combed their hair. I said to the director, you know what? I, I, I can't comb my hair. I'll do anything. Uh, you know, just tell me what to do, but I, I can't comb my hair. And he said, <laughs> you know what? It's written, go comb your hair. <laughs> So now I have to be true to myself and a professional. I'm now making $1,000 a week. Not, I just didn't save $1,000. I'm not getting $1,000 a week to, to play this character. Once a week I show up and do like a few lines. I walk to the mirror, pull out my comb. Hey, look at that. It's perfect. I don't have to. Okay, so, so raise your hand if you were in school in the 1970s and you ever tried to do that voice in the mirror. Um, <laughs> any, any male who's not holding his hand up is probably a liar. Um, I, I, I wanna go back to something that happened your first day on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, because I think it really, to me, it was one of those episodes in the book that really helped me feel who you are as a person. And you said on the first day, it was lunchtime. Yes. And, and everybody went off to lunch, and you were left alone, and you said you made a promise to yourself at that moment that you would never let another actor on a set with you feel the loneliness that you felt at that moment. But that is who I was at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, the journey of the book, I now realize after working on it and rewriting, and my, my wife is my... Um, my secret editor at home, you know, we, we, I was being for a lot of my life who I thought I should be. And I was so boxed in by not letting anything come out of that other than my image of who I should be and too scared to change because you don't know, uh, other people are still gonna love me if I'm still gonna be uh, the same actor, am I gonna do? And the, the, the arc of the book is that I am now becoming who I am. And I was not who I was, and I was, when everybody left and I was standing there, I became eight. I became, I became my entire childhood. I became like, I don't know where to go. Now I'm an adult. I could have said, hey, where's the commissary? Like a person could ask. <laughs> but I didn't. I felt abandoned. Mm 
I felt an old abandonment. And I swore at that moment, if I am ever on a set and I had anything to say that would never happen to another actor, they would never not know where to go. And you kept that promise. I kept that promise. Yes, yeah. yep. So, I, I do feel like we, we kind of have to talk about the elephant in the room, even though it's not an elephant, it's a different kind of animal. Um, it's no secret here in this crowd that I'm a lover of words and, and etymology and the derivation of idioms. And to be in the presence of somebody who Those was, are very big was, words I've never used. So, so <laughs> when, when, you're, when you're with somebody who was there at the moment an idiom was created, you have to ask him, Go ahead. tell us about jumping the shark. Oh. <laughs> so it starts with my father. Now my father uh, and my mother escaped Nazi Germany. And they came over here and my father started a business importing and exporting wood. And he wanted me to import and export wood. And I did not want to even think about wood. <laughs> I wanted to be an actor. And uh, he asked me, now he could speak 11 languages. He wanted to be a diplomat. Uh, I had trouble with English. Yeah. And he would ask me five times a day in 11 languages, why do you think I brought some business over here? And I said, besides being chased by the Nazis, Dad, was there a bigger reason than that? <laughs> so the, one of the only sports I actually could do was water ski. And I was a camp counselor, a job I loved, uh, of uh, like eight-year-old, um, the eight-year-old bunk. And I was the water ski instructor. And my father said, tell Gary Marshall you water ski. I said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then he would say to me every time we talked on the phone or if I went home, did you tell Gary Marshall you water ski? <laughs> so finally I said, Gary Marshall, I got to tell you, my father wants you to know I water ski. <laughs> Dad, I told him. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm on water skis. <laughs> so I could do all of the water skiing except for the jump because they wouldn't let me do a, uh, um, a stunt because there was only one me and they, they couldn't shut down production. So I did the water skiing. And, uh, you know, if you, if you watch the episode, I think they freeze frame on my face. I let go of the rope and I pull up on the sand and I walk out of the water skis and I'm smiling. <laughs> Half that smile is the Fonz going, I did it. The other half is Henry going, holy mackerel, I did it. <laughs> Oh. So then there's a guy, John Heim, who is at Michigan State. And he is with his friends watching uh, Happy Days and comes up with the idea of jumping the shark when a show has outstayed its welcome or now it's in the vernacular. Anything outstays its welcome. It has jumped the shark. I know I'm up now. <laughs> So it is uh, Jump the Shark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, here's the thing. We were number one for four or five years after that. Yeah. So it didn't matter. And 
at the time, at the time, uh, there were things called newspapers, and people actually read them. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. You know, folded it over, <laughs> bend it over. And every time they mentioned Jump the Shark, there was a picture of me water skiing. <laughs> and at that time, I had great legs. <laughs> so I didn't care. Altogether. Thank you. So, <clears throat> you're... We're, we're not going to ask to see the legs, okay? Just to, um, so you're, you're playing the Fonz. We're in a church, <laughs> or I would have shown you. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're playing this character who's becoming iconic on a very popular television show. Yes. You, you, when you go out in public, there are times when there are mobs of screaming yes. women coming after you. I know exactly what that's like. Just a couple... <laughs> No, no, a couple can of weeks ago, say, a guy came up to me and said, I like your book, so, you know. Um, but can I just say, I just noticed your cool socks. Well, that's really what it does. And it, I can imagine that that draws hordes. So, <laughs> but, but kidding aside, to, you talked about trying to find, find the you, the real you. Yes. To what extent does celebrity and a public wanting you to be a character oh. interfere with that journey to that is a great question. I don't, I, I, no, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Number one, to my mind, it is practical that I am a celebrity because it means that I'm making a living. Mm -hmm. That uh, when it, it's raining, I don't have to wait online at the movie theater. <laughs> I mean, down to that, it was that it, it was unbelievable. Two, people would talk to me, and I could not hear them. I knew that they were saying lovely things. I felt the warmth, but being dyslexic has an emotional component to it, and you have such little sense of self. You cannot imagine that what they are saying or the way they are treating you could be you. I'm always looking over my shoulder, to, who are they talking to? When I'm walking with my children or with Stacy, now Stacy, um, I would stop and take a picture, and Stacy would, I would just walk on ahead. Um, but with the children, I would say, I found honesty was a, a great policy in this area. Uh, I would say, you know what, I'm just in the middle of a conversation with my son or my daughter, so you'll excuse me. And if you tell the truth, they listen. Otherwise, when you're alone, they open the stall door and say, you know, I'm not gonna get a chance. <laughs> and I'm saying, could this wait? <laughs> and they're going, not really. <laughs> so it is all those, now I, I know where, I know, it, it, the dimension of it is, on the one hand, that is all going on. People want parts of you. They want your hair, your socks, without taking off your shoes. <laughs> on the other hand, I am the, uh, uh, I am the honorary chairman 
of the uh, arts festival, the um, children with uh, learning challenge or mental challenge, their arts festival at, uh, down in LA. Yeah. And I'm walking through and there are children, they are all different challenges and I'm talking to them and enjoying them and all of a sudden I hear from behind me, Fonz. And I turn around and there's a little six-year-old girl and her mother has dissolved into a heap of tears. And I said, I, I'm so sorry, what is, uh, can I help you? She said, you don't understand, my daughter just spoke her first word. So my dream from 78th Street to getting this show to the imagination jumping off the screen that this autistic child just spoke her first word. Years later, I'm speaking, and uh, a dad comes up and said, you know, my son Adam would like to take a picture with you. And I said, sure, come on, where's Adam? And he said, hey, Adam, big, strapping 17-year-old. I put my arm around him, I pull him in, and we're taking a picture, and now the father is shaking. I said, what's wrong? What, what happened? He said, my son is autistic. Nobody except his mother can touch him. Without thinking, I just, and he just let the fawns. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Jed, our, our oldest, is now 52 in the third grade. He is studying uh, the, the... There was a comma in that sentence. <laughs> 52 was in the third grade. <laughs> the Fonz was very respectful to Native Americans in one episode, the Thanksgiving episode. We take him to the Hopi Nation because he's studying Native Americans and you must lock your camera in your car uh, as you enter the, uh, the reservation because they feel like you're taking their soul when you take a, a, a picture. And I was asked to get my camera. And so I was given the honor of being able to take a picture of their Kachina dances because I was respectful in one episode. They watched television using their car battery as their electricity. And then when we were leaving, I was given this piping, fresh-baked bread. And uh, the, the, uh, the woman said to me, I have nothing else to give you for everything you have given us. Wow. Wow. That's the Fonz. So one of your co-stars, uh, Ron Howard, yes. gone on to be a very distinguished uh, director, but at the time that you met him starting at Happy Days, he's a 17-year-old he's a kid. You're, yes. You're 27. Yes. But in, ways he, in a way, he's your mentor. He's the seasoned television actor. It, but it's true. Talk a little bit about and what you And wise. Yeah. He was so wise. Yeah. So now, remember, I'm New York. I'm the Yale School of Drama. We're, doing, uh, we're on stage uh, 24 on Paramount Lot. And we're doing a scene, and I am now, I'm hating this joke. I can't, I don't know how to figure this joke out. And Ron Howard, 
puts his arm around me, walks me to the back of the soundstage, and he said, you know, they're working as hard as they can. I wouldn't hit my script. I said, Ron, I will never hit my script as long as I live. And the lessons that I learned, this man was completely professional. Now, in the fourth year, he's driving me home. He has the original bug, the VW bug. <laughs> and we're driving home in Herbie. And uh, I said to him, you know, Ron, we, we've got to talk about this. How do you feel? Because he was hired as the star, yeah. and the Fonz is on fire. Yeah. And he said, you know, it, it hurts my feelings. I was hired as the star. But you're not doing anything but being a good actor, and it's good for the show. Mm -hmm. And that was the first and the last time we talked about it. Mm -hmm. And he is like my brother. Yeah. So about two months ago, Ron Howard and his wife Cheryl, I knew them both before they were married. His daughter Bryce, our godchild, who in 2000, when I was on Broadway with John Ritter, the late John Ritter, who I'm sorry you never knew because he was like a magnificent human being. His daughter, Ron's daughter, is at NYU and I take her to lunch. And she said, you know, there was a guy in my class, and I've got to get him to pay attention. I don't know how to do it. I said, you know what? You are so wonderful as you. Just be Bryce. She was at the dining room table, and that boy was at the dining room table. They've been married for 20 years. <laughs> Their children, Zoe, who was married a few months after Bryce, both red hair, her family at the table, and Ron is telling me the story. You know, there was a phone booth uh, on stage 19 where we did it uh, in front of a live audience for um, eight years, yeah. and, or nine years, because one year we did it uh, one camera like a movie. Yeah. So there's this phone booth, and I get a call. Uh, uh, Henry, there's a phone call for you. And it's right next to the donuts. So I took a donut. Uh, I like glazed. <laughs> and Ron said, uh, it's going to be out in the press, and in 10 minutes, everyone's going to know I'm leaving the show. And I thought to myself, my life is over. There was a silence. Mm. And I thought, this is one of the best acting partners I have ever had. He's leaving the show. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I said, you know, Ron, you have been dreaming about this. We've been talking about this. You must go. You've got to go. Be as great as you can be. He's a billion-dollar director. <laughs> At our dining room table, he now is telling me his side of the story. And he says, you know, there was this long silence and then you said, Ron, go get it. This is what you dreamed about. You're going to be great. And he said, when you said that, it gave me the courage of my conviction. It let me know I made the right decision. And I said, it took you 50 years to tell me that? <laughs> Could have let me in.
There was another call that came on that phone from a police officer. The police, yeah. oh my goodness. This is an amazing story, so tell, tell us a story. Because you said you almost, it was only, you only got two calls on that phone in 10 years or yes, something. Yes, it's true. Was the, this was the other one. Yeah. yeah. So this is the definition of chutzpah. If you've heard of chutzpah, which is the Yiddish word for nerve, this is where it happened. I get a phone call. It is a policeman from uh, uh, Indiana, an, uh, an I state. Yep. <laughs> and he says, uh, there, we have a young kid out here on the ledge, 17 years old. He wants to jump, but before he does, he wants to talk to you. Can I, can I reach the phone out to him? I said, sure. So we're talking. I said, so what's the problem? He said, you know, I want to be an actor, but nothing is happening. I said, I got the Fonz when I was 27. You've got plenty of time. And then I said, let me ask you a question. Do you have a record collection? He said, yeah. I said, would you just go inside and sign on a piece of paper that you, uh, once you've jumped, that you sign this record collection over to me? You know, so that they know that I'm now going to inherit. And he went, yeah. So he went into the window, and they got him. And <laughs> Where I got the nerve to say yes, to talk to him like that, where I came up with a record collection. <laughs> what a moment. What a moment. Again, being the Fonz. Now, this is, this is a book audience. We're, you know, these are supporters of bookmarks here. You are not just a, a world-famous actor. You are um, a New York Times best-selling children's author. You are, as you found out, oh, it gets, it gets better. The book that you just picked up at the back door is now just been announced on the New York Times bestseller list. But, but because he holds kind of a special place in my heart, tell us a little bit about Hank Zipser and how he came to be and how you became a children's writer. I, got, I became a, a children's book author through the back door. Yeah. About 2002. Now, people would say, God, he is so talented. He's so funny. He's just so good, but he was the Fonz. And I had a hard time being hired. And so I spent a long time, uh, I produced, you know, first. And then a friend of mine said, write books for children about your dyslexia. I said, I can't because I'm dyslexic. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, in high school, we read uh, The Tale of Two Cities. I read the cover <laughs> and the back cover, uh, cover to cover. <laughs> I never read the inside. What I did was I took water and I sprinkled it over the pages and it crinkled up. And by the time it dried on Monday, I took it in and it looked like I beat that book into submission. <laughs> so. He said, I said, I can't, I can't write a children's book. He said, I'll introduce you to Lynn Oliver. And we have, uh, we j just as a matter of fact, 
uh, at the beginning of October, our newest children's book uh, came out, uh, um, Detective Duck. And uh, she is a detective and this, this little duckling and she is funny and she solves problems, uh, the environmental problems on her pond mm -hmm. being a detective. But Hank, I thought you write what you know. And so with Lynn, I walk around her office and talk, she types. Then she's got an idea, I wait, she types. She reads it back to me and we argue over every word. <laughs> but I knew, I knew every fiber of this eight-year-old when I was 57 who failed at everything. I knew how he felt. I knew how he covered that. I knew how resourceful he was. Because I, I, I see my life um, uh, as that toy. You blow up, it's like a clown or a cowboy. You punch it, it goes down, it comes right back up again. And that's me. And that was Hank. And that is how... Um, I uh, wrote with Lynn yeah. about this little boy and his friends. His friends are not dyslexic, they just love him. Yeah. They say on Halloween, Hank, we're telling you this is not a good idea. He said, I love my imagination. I am going as a table in an Italian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> he just hadn't figured out how to get through the door. He, if you want, if you really want, um, if you really want to know the answer to that first question, if there is a dyslexic child in your life, and you want to know what that feels like, read Hank Zipser, because it's just he just does an amazing job of of having you understand what it's like to be in those shoes, and I think, just think that's so important. Thank for, you so yeah, much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm so, so let's, prou I'm proudest outside of my family and my puppies. I am a proudest of those novels yeah, yeah. Um, uh, more than anything. So outside of your family? Yes. So let's talk about someone on the front row here. Yes. Your wife, Stacy, of yes. how many years? Uh, of 45. Uh, and it's... <laughs> now, here it is. You know there are ups and there are downs, but if you will... It, then it, it will be 45. And uh, am I right? I mean, that, I mean, that's honest, right? Yeah. You're not always crazy about me. But <laughs> I, of course, am devoted to you. So you did, you did something which I think is... You did something pretty courageous in this book, I think. And that is, there are a few places, and all of you think about whether you would do this if you're writing a memoir about your own life. There are a few places where you, you narrate a scene in your life, and then you let Stacy narrate the same scene in right. her words, and those words are in, in the book. Tell us about that and about, about the decision to, to tell the story in that way. The decision was easy. I, I, I know how to write with a partner. I cannot type it. Mm -hmm. So I met a wonderful man named James Kaplan, and I didn't know that I had to fly him out to California twice. <laughs> I talked to him for about 70 hours. I had to feed him three times a day. <laughs> and this guy was an eater. <laughs> there was no tuna sandwich involved. 
And James said, you know, I'm going to interview Stacy. And I said, absolutely. Then when we, were, when we were talking, he said, you know, I'm going to include, we should include Stacy. I said, absolutely. And then I read this on, uh, on Audible. And everybody reads a, a novel like in, in two days, let's say. I was allotted 100 hours to read my own story. And then they said, well, instead of hiring an actress, would Stacy do it? And I asked her, and she's never done it before, walked into the studio on her own, recorded her part, and uh, everybody is delighted that Stacy is included. Everywhere I go. Yeah. So we were going to sing happy birthday, but you said she doesn't No, want no, 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 please. So I just want you to we, we're know. We're driving for 90 minutes after this. That, we're, we're going, and I, I, please, I want to survive. I, I just want you to know that there are, We're there thinking are, it. There are 600 people in this room who were silently in their hearts singing you happy birthday. So. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I think we have a couple of minutes left. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make you do the uh, the Charlie Lovett standard ten questions because you did those on the podcast. We had a podcast together. We did a few years ago during COVID. It was our very first Zoom podcast when that was new to all of us. Um, but favorite meal coming Thanksgiving, but not Thanksgiving uh, the first time. Which I, you know what? You know how family hold back. I I don't know that concept. I am the first online. And uh, I, because I want like enough gravy left over, you know. And I was, but the, the sandwich the next day. Oh. I wait all year long. Now I could have it, you know, sometimes it's on a menu. I don't have it because I wait for Thanksgiving. Wonder bread, mayo, fried stuffing, some turkey. Cranberry out of the can, no berries. Yes, yes. More mayo. Wonder bread, smush, cut. And if there is any cream spinach left over on the side. Uh, favorite concert. I, I love um, Bruce Springsteen, I love Bruce. But, uh, okay, we went, to, we just went to see, uh, about uh, a month ago, uh, we went to see Brandy Carlisle. Mm, yeah. If you don't know Brandy Carlisle, you will love her when you meet her in your ear. I, I'm so, now she had friends with her that night. And uh, Andy, uh, Annie Lennox, I never heard her in yeah. person. Oh my goodness, she sings with such power. My hair moved and we were like, <laughs> way back. And then I went backstage because I, I, I cannot leave the venue without hugging Brandy Carlisle. I just adore this woman, she is a poet. And, and the last friend that she had was Joni Mitchell. Oh. Joni Mitchell, I, we go backstage, I hug Brandy, she's in a beautiful, beautiful coat, and uh, 
Joni Mitchell is in a room and I go with Stacy. I said, Miss Mitchell, I just want to say I'm Henry Winkler. She said, I know who you are. <laughs> I then introduced, I said, this is my wife, Stacy, and she said, oh, so you married the Fonz. <laughs> the problem with the, with the lapel mics, it's hard to do the mic drop, but um, I, I want to I just share with you as we're ending here a brief passage so you can understand what a thoughtful, well-written book this is. Henry writes, only now do I understand that things come in their own time, that you couldn't have known then what you know now, that only the process of living gets you there. You must do the work in order to eat the fruit of growing, of being. In my late 70s, I'm trying very hard to live in the moment and enjoy every moment. I'm thrilled, elated that I'm here now. Henry, we are thrilled that you are here with us tonight. Mr. Henry Winkler. Can I just say, can I just say that first of all, sir, I cannot tell you how much I appreciated this conversation. I loved it the first time. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And number two, I hope you have a safe and peaceful holiday season. And I am so grateful that you were here and you listened because my parents never did. <laughs> This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and you've been listening to a rebroadcast of my live conversation with Henry Winkler, whose memoir, Being Henry, The Fonz and Beyond, is available wherever books are sold. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Virginia Cantra, whose novel The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale will be published on December 5th, and Virginia will be visiting us on December 6th at Bookmarks to sign copies of her new novel. Until then, thanks for joining us, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.